This episode contains descriptions of slavery and racist language. There is a statue in front of Harvard Hall in the yard, which tells three lies. The inscription on the stone reads, John Harvard, founder, 1638. But the statue does not depict John Harvard, who was not the founder of Harvard, which was not founded in 1638. It isn't entirely clear when Harvard was founded. This is just one of the many things we don't know about Harvard's almost 400-year past. Among these is the history of slavery at Harvard and the role that enslaved people played in building an institution whose first leader was an enslaver. From the Harvard Crimson, this is the first episode of A Legacy Revealed. Scholars inside and outside of the university have meticulously analyzed old records, journals, and accounts to reconstruct the legacy of enslaved people at Harvard. Today, we're joined by Dr. Caitlin DeAngelis Hopkins. Caitlin, who formerly taught the Harvard and Slavery Seminar course, was part of the group of researchers that authored the original Harvard and Slavery Report published in 2011. They hired a couple of graduate students, I was a graduate student at the time, to just do fact checking, you know, make sure double check all of their footnotes and all of their sources. And so I got involved doing that, um, going into the archives and checking the students' original research. And then after I got my PhD, I worked for two years as the research associate for the Harvard and Slavery Project. So my job was writing a report for the Harvard President's Office on the history of Harvard and slavery. Thank you so much for joining us, Caitlin. So if you were to tell the history of Harvard and slavery, where would you start? The history of Harvard and slavery starts right at the beginning of Harvard. And before I say anything else, I should just make sure to emphasize that a lot of what we know about Harvard and slavery comes from student research and student research projects. And so in the 17th century, records are pretty spotty. But we do know that the first enslaved person who lived on Harvard's campus was a man whose name we don't know. The records just call him the Moor, which is a, a term used for um, African people in the 17th century. And that he lived on Harvard's campus, which at the time was just one building, in the home of the schoolmaster, Nathaniel Eaton. According to research from the 2011 report, the first mention of the Moor in historical documents was in 1639, not long after the arrival of Desire, a ship that brought some of the first enslaved Africans to the New England colonies around 1638. We only know a little bit about the Moor, and what we know about him comes from a trial where Nathaniel Eaton was accused of being cruel to students. So he was accused of beating students and of not feeding them well. And some of the student accusations were that the enslaved man who lived in the house got better food than the students, and also that he slept in students' beds. What was the role of enslaved people on Harvard's campus? Did they mostly serve their enslaver's family, or were they tasked with other obligations to the Harvard community? 
So the specific records that we have of what enslaved people were doing on campus are often things like cooking or delivering messages or delivering packages. There's one record in the diary of Henry Flint, who's the head tutor at Harvard for a very long time in the 18th century. He writes a little note just about, you know, daily life in his journal. And one of his notes says that Titus, an enslaved man who lived in Wadsworth House, delivered, it was like 27 bottles of wine to Wadsworth House, and he broke one. And that was why it was recorded in the, the diary. One of the bottles was broken. But it showed just a daily task that Titus was doing, which was making a delivery to Wadsworth House. Titus did a lot of other things. He worked in the orchard. He worked with haying. So enslaved people at Harvard were doing a lot of that sort of work in the grounds and also cooking. There's a letter that a Harvard student wrote in the 1760s talking about going down into the kitchen among the Negroes in the kitchen, quotation, that's the letter, but talking about how enslaved people are working in the kitchens. And how prevalent was the practice of owning enslaved people among the Harvard faculty and administration? In the 18th century, there's a lot more evidence of all sorts of life at Harvard, but there's a lot more evidence about the Harvard professors and officials who were enslavers at Harvard. So people like Benjamin Wadsworth and Edward Holyoke, who were presidents of Harvard, were enslavers and enslaved several people. And once you get to the middle of the 18th century, you get to a point where every person who was in a position of authority at Harvard was an enslaver. So the president, all of the professors, the head tutor, lecturers, people like Judah Monis, um, the head lecturer, Henry Flint, the steward. There was a family called the Boardman family and several generations of them were the stewards of Harvard College. Their household had the most enslaved people of any household in Cambridge. And actually it was cheaper to own an enslaved person if you were affiliated with Harvard. Because of just the way Harvard's charter is set up, Harvard officials and professors didn't pay taxes. And so they were exempt from taxes on personal property, including people that they enslaved. And so that was one way that being affiliated with Harvard actually subsidized slave ownership in the 1730s, 1740s. Could you tell us a little bit about Harvard's financial connections to slave labor? What's the history behind that? Harvard is relying on the New England economy as a whole. When Harvard starts out, it's um, publicly funded. It's funded by the colony of Massachusetts and by voluntary contributions. But in the 1670s, it tries to start building a little bit of an endowment so that the school is not so dependent on the colony for money because their, their cash flow was very irregular. And so they start investing in very small loans. 50 pounds here, 100 pounds there. And a lot of these loans were for mortgages or small business loans. And is there a reason why people were coming to Harvard for loans instead of, say, a bank? Yeah. So there were no banks in um, British North America before the American Revolution. If you wanted a loan and you were rich and you were a big name, you could go to the Bank of England or somewhere in England, but there weren't really banks in Massachusetts. And Harvard as an institution that had cash on hand and was sort of stable, just became a lending institution. It essentially became a bank. 
is there evidence that these loans were being used to purchase and enslave people? The way that Harvard's financial records in the 18th century are set up is that there are books and books full of these loans. But the way the loans are recorded is it only has the person's name and the date and the amount. It doesn't say what the loan is for. There's no like loan application. And so what needs to be done is that in those thousands of cases, you have to go one by one and see what that person's business was and what they were doing at the time. There's a, a master's thesis by a student named Gary Stout who talks about investments in the early endowment. And he talks about someone who got a loan from Harvard and then the next year it had a, a distillery that he had built. And so from just sort of the circumstantial evidence, it seems that he may have used that loan to build a distillery, which of course distills molasses into rum and is reliant on the Atlantic slave economy. And he has traced several of these investments. So Harvard's endowment is really based in this New England economy, but it's important to note that the New England economy is really tied to the Caribbean slave economy and the sugar plantations. You know, when you learn in school about the products that were made in New England, you learn about stores for ships, so tar and wood and things for making ships, and also about things like salt cod and flour and pork. But what you need to understand is that a lot of that food, especially the salt fish and all of that, is going to the Caribbean to feed enslaved people on sugar plantations. Harvard was also funded by donations from prominent families that gained their wealth through the Atlantic slave trade, and later, in the 19th century, cotton plantations. One of these gifts, by Isaac Royal, was eventually used to start Harvard Law School. Other gifts were made by influential families like the Lawrences and Lowells, names which Harvard buildings still carry today. Those gifts were huge gifts, and not just money, they actually changed Harvard's whole curriculum. The Lawrence Scientific School in the 1840s and 50s was a huge gift. I think it was $100,000 in, in two $50,000 chunks from a cotton manufacturer named Lawrence. And that really brought scientific education to Harvard. Before that, a lot of the Harvard education was, you know, Latin, Greek, Hebrew, that sort of education. And after the founding of the Lawrence Scientific School, because Lawrence, as a manufacturer and an industrialist, wanted the United States to have its own engineering capacity and have students who had that background. And so founding the Lawrence Scientific School was a big deal. It became clear that enslavers ran lucrative industries from which Harvard could benefit. One thing that Harvard did was try to recruit students whose families were enslavers in the Caribbean and owned sugar plantations. And so they recruited these students and they tried to make life at Harvard really cushy for them. They had this special status called fellow commoners, where a student who came to Harvard and paid double tuition and presented the college with a silver cup, was able to get this special status where they had higher social status than any of the other undergraduates. And they didn't have to tip their caps to anyone. They didn't have to do any of the hazing that a lot of younger students had to do. In the 1720s and 30s, there was a clique of them led by a group of brothers whose last name was Vassal. 
The vassals may be familiar to you because one of the brothers, John, built the house that's on Brattle Street that's now the Longfellow House. It's the vassal Craigie Longfellow House. And so that was built out of his fortune from his sugar plantation in Jamaica. And these three brothers and their friends from Barbados were really, really influential at Harvard while they were there. They were very rich. They didn't follow any rules. They've got disciplinary records as long as your arm because they, they didn't follow the rules and they knew that they didn't have to because they were rich and paying double what everyone else was paying in tuition. The 1830s saw the beginnings of the anti-slavery movement in America. However, many formerly enslaved Black men and women were fighting for abolitionism long before that, and this was just as reflected in Harvard's history as it was in America. Well, one of the really interesting things about studying Harvard and slavery is that when you look at who is talking about abolitionism, there are different phases. So there are a couple of important reparations cases in the 1780s that are connected to Harvard. One is Belinda Sutton's petition. So Belinda Sutton was enslaved by a man named Isaac Royal. Isaac Royal was not a Harvard alum, but he did give Harvard a, a large gift that Harvard then later used to found Harvard Law School. And Belinda Sutton wrote a petition to the Massachusetts government asking for a pension because she had been enslaved by Isaac Royal for her entire life for more than 50 years. And there's another case very similar to that where a married couple named Anthony and Cuba Vassal also petitioned for a similar pension because they were enslaved by the Vassal family who we just talked about, those sugar planters from Jamaica. And when the Vassal family left Massachusetts during the American Revolution, they just left most of the enslaved people behind. And so people like Anthony and Cuba were left without any support. And they petitioned for a pension. And if you want, you can see in the Harvard archives, and they have it all digitized on online, um, a receipt that Anthony Vassal got from the state when, when he got one of the payments from this pension. So in the 1780s, you see enslaved people and formerly enslaved people petitioning for emancipation. Much later, you start to see white abolitionists talking about abolitionism on Harvard's campus. In the 1830s, you start to see a few younger faculty talking about abolitionism, but Harvard clamps down on that pretty fast. Charles Follin, who was a German radical who left Germany after some legal troubles in Germany for his radicalism and came to the United States and was a, a lecturer in German and at Harvard and also a lecturer at the law school. He actually had a lot of jobs here and they created a professorship for him because he was a, an important scholar and they wanted to keep him. But after his anti-slavery activities became more prominent, Harvard canceled his professorship. They said it was like a trial run for five years, and then they decided not to renew it. And they also started reducing his other contracts. He had a family, and he couldn't support his family anymore after Harvard kept cutting his contract in half. And so he left Harvard voluntarily, but under a lot of pressure. In addition to intimidating professors, Harvard also suppressed many student groups who were advocating for abolitionism. There was a debating society at the Divinity School that was talking about abolitionism, and they invited undergraduate students to come and be part of these discussions. And 
the president at the time, President Quincy, said that it was against the rules for any of the graduate schools to include undergraduates in their activities and that they could have these meetings, but they had to be closed. They couldn't invite anyone from outside the divinity school and they couldn't publicize them. Today, Harvard's About page on their website invites prospective students to, quote, join nearly four centuries of students and scholars in pursuit of truth, knowledge, and a better world. And the university also encourages diverse viewpoints and debate among affiliates. At the time, why was Harvard so hesitant to allow discussions of abolitionism on campus? In the 1830s and 40s, Harvard was trying to expand its reach and become a national university. They wanted to attract students from all over the United States, not just from New England and Massachusetts. And so one of the things that was really important to Harvard was to not scare away students and parents from the South. If you read in the records of the presidents, they were really worried about offending slave-owning Southerners. And so they bent over backwards to really try to appease slave-owning students and slave-owning parents. So there are a lot of things that Harvard did in this period, the 1830s sort of through 50s, to appease these students. So Harvard as an institution may have been trying to appease these families, but were affiliates predominantly opposed to abolition too? A lot of Harvard faculty at the time were sort of moderate abolitionist type people. For example, you can look at some of the lectures and the talks that they sponsored during the 1840s and 50s. And often these talks are from people who are moderates, who believe in moderation, who say we should reach a compromise. In 1862, you can look at another example is who did Harvard give honorary degrees to? And it's often people who are moderates who are talking about, let's keep the union together. Let's have a moderate position on abolition, but it's very rare to have radical abolitionists on the Harvard faculty in this period. You do see radical abolitionists within the Harvard staff, people who work in food service at Harvard or people who work in cleaning at Harvard are much more likely to be abolitionists and radical abolitionists than the faculty. In November of 2019, Harvard University President Larry Bacow announced the Harvard and the Legacy of Slavery Initiative. This ongoing project is composed of several subcommittees dedicated to researching and addressing Harvard's historic ties to slavery, including examining topics like Harvard's links to Antigua and other Caribbean nations, as well as contemporary campus life. Dean Tomiko Brown-Nagan, who chairs the presidential committee, said that, quote, We cannot dismantle what we do not understand, and we cannot understand the contemporary injustice we face unless we reckon honestly with our history. So, Caitlin, you were part of the original Harvard and Slavery Report that came out a decade ago, in 2011. What do you hope the new Harvard and the Legacy of Slavery Initiative, commissioned by President Pacquiao, builds on from the original findings? There's so much work that needs to be done. We just talked about quantifying the early endowment and all of those many, many loans. When I was involved with the project in 2011, it was students 
working on it and doing semester long research projects. Whereas something like quantifying all those thousands of loans is a project for many years and for economic historians to go and track all those down. I hope that they'll use their resources to do things like quantify exactly how many of those loans are related to the Atlantic slave economy. And also just sort of recognizing that those early loans in the endowment then made it possible for Harvard to invest in the 19th century and become the gigantic endowment that it is today. This series is hosted by Raquel Coronel Uribe and Six U. It's produced by Lara Dada, with music by Dash Chin and art by Madison Shirazi. Thank you to Dr. Caitlin DeAngelis Hopkins for joining us for this episode. <laughs>